This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Very much, uh, very, very warm welcome to you this evening to talk about something that I think is very present in many of our minds at the moment, emergency resettlement. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners, custodians and elders of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, past, present and future on whose traditional land we meet today. Now, as you may have gathered from uh, the announcement of this event, we have uh, a, a great panel to talk about these issues tonight, starting with Sophie McNeil. And many of you, I know, will have seen her program on Four Corners just last week, uh, in which she discussed the case, or looked more closely at the case of, of the young Saudi woman, Rahab. And I think brought many things to our attention of which we were not familiar and which may well give us cause of concern. She will be, be speaking more to that, that, that occasion, those events, and those considerations uh, this evening. Uh, Sophie joined the ABC Four Corners in April of last year after returning from a three year posting in the Middle East reporting for the ABC. She's twice been awarded the Australian Young TV Journalist of the Year Award, and in 2010, uh, won a Walkley for her investigation of the killing of five children in Afghanistan by Australian Special Forces. She was nominated for a Walkley in 2015 for her coverage of the Syrian refugee crisis and previously worked as a reporter for ABC's foreign correspondent and SBS's Dateline program. She's also a former host of Triple J's news and current events program, HAG. She will be followed by Khan Huang, and Khan is a, a senior protection assistance at the Office of the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees in Canberra. He's currently undertaking a doctorate at the Cowell Centre as well. Uh, he's looking at the potential of additional or complementary pathways to refugee protection through uh, community sponsorship in particular. And he will be looking in his work at the way such pathways can be operationalised in particular in the Australian context. Before that, he, before joining UNHCR, he was an associate lecturer at the ANU, their Migration Law Program, and he's previously worked for the Refugee and Migration Division of the Administrative Appeals Tribunal and as a legal officer for the Law Reform Commission. And finally, we come to Claire Higgins. Claire is uh, an award-winning historian. Her research focuses on in-country processing and on refugee status determination in historical context. In 2018, she was a Fulbright Scholar at Georgetown University in DC, where she undertook comparative research in alternative pathways to safe and orderly access to humanitarian resettlement. And as a postdoc, she was also at the European University Institute in 2017, where she researched Italy's innovative humanitarian corridors program, which enables Syrian asylum seekers to claim protection in Italy with some safety. And she completed her doctorate in history at the University of Oxford, which looked at the development of Australian refugee policy, and that in turn led to her first very well-received book, Asylum by Both Origins of Australia's Refugee Policy, published by New South in 2017. It gives me great personal pleasure to be here tonight to be focusing on the issue of resettlement, because after my five years here in Sydney as a UNHCR legal advisor in the late 70s, early 80s, I was posted to Geneva and was for some nine months Deputy Chief of the Resettlement Section. And after my very positive experiences in Australia the five years before that, and in my light of my experience as Deputy Chief of the Resettlement Section, Resettlement has always maintained a very close, has been a very close interest of mine uh, ever since. And I am not just there for an international lawyer thinking about the ways in which the rights of refugees may be protected, but also the very practical approach to refugee problems and the solutions that resettlement in particular uh, can provide. So I'm very much looking forward to the contributions which you will have tonight, which will be looking very much at the practicalities of finding solutions for refugees in this highly contested field at the present time. So without more, may I welcome, and would you welcome, please, uh, Sophie Wendell. Thank you very much for having me here this evening. Thank you all for coming. I know it's uh, everyone leads busy lives. It's not easy to come to the city on a weeknight. Um, I thought I'd just start by explaining how I got involved in uh, Rahab's story and 
um, how the case of one young Saudi woman has really blown this issue up for a lot of us in the last few weeks. I think there's been a lot of coverage of, of resettlement in a way that there hasn't been for such a long time because of, of one young woman who was incredibly brave. Um, it all started, it was Sunday the 6th of January and I'm meant to be writing a book that I was on Twitter on my laptop sitting in my house in Sydney and I, I started to see the, these tweets from a young woman saying, you know, I'm stuck at Bangkok Airport. And because I was a Middle East correspondent for three years, I followed a lot of Saudi women on Twitter and they just kept coming up and then the um, Egyptian feminist author, Mona El-Tahawi, began translating them and she received more information about this young woman, you know. She's stuck in Bangkok Airport. Saudi embassy officials have confiscated her passport. Um, she has been told that she's going to be deported tomorrow. You know, she, she says her life is at risk because she's fled an abusive family, and they, you know, that she didn't have their permission to leave because in Saudi Arabia, you know, under the male guardianship system, you don't have the freedom to travel as a woman. So she she fled whilst her family was on holiday in Kuwait arrived on a Kuwait Airways flight. And so I saw these tweets and immediately I thought of an earlier case, um, the case of a young woman called Dina Ali who was on her way to Australia in April 2017 and she was at Manila Airport. Very similar case to Rahaf, a young Saudi woman fled from Kuwait because she couldn't leave from Saudi by herself. Um, said she was fleeing an abusive family, was planning on claiming asylum in Australia. The thing with Dina Ali is that her story had the most tragic ending, and I knew that. So when I saw Rahaf's tweets, I knew the potential of what could happen to her. Dina Ali had her family fly out to the Philippines with the help of Filipino officials, airline staff from Philippines Airlines, and Saudi Embassy officials. Dina Ali was beaten by her uncles. She had her arms and her legs taped together, her mouth taped shut, a blanket put over her. She was forced onto a wheelchair and taken to a Saudi Airways flight back to Riyadh. Witnesses um, that Reuters spoke to said that they saw a screaming woman being dragged onto the plane. Witnesses who went to Riyadh airport to try and welcome Dina Ali because they heard about her case on Twitter, they were arrested themselves. And Dina Ali has not been heard of publicly since. Uh, the last reported sighting of her was at a women's shelter in Riyadh. So this is what I thought of immediately. When I heard about Rahaf, I, I knew where this could go. And there was a lot of people saying on Twitter, how do we know she's real and, you know, this, she's really going to be killed and, you know, it seems very melodramatic, you know, what the effort that was being put into, you know, resisting getting back on that flight. But, but I, I knew that the fate of, of what can happen to young Saudi women who got the system, who flee, who define, who defy their male guardians. And, and not every family is like this in Saudi Arabia, but when you are, when you're um, part of one of those families that, that do not let you have the freedom to do what you want, then, then life is incredibly, incredibly impressive. So I spent a few hours emailing people, other journalists that I knew in Bangkok, you know, first week of January, no one was around. I emailed the UNHCR, it was a Sunday. <laughs> so, you know, it's very difficult to get people on their email. Um, emailed Human Rights Watch, they, they responded fairly quickly. Um, but Rahaf kept sending me these messages. She was terrified. Um, by then we had got in touch by direct message on Twitter and sort of back and forth and so by the, it was probably about five in the afternoon Sydney time. Um, I'd first spoken to her at about 10, 30, 11 in the morning. Um, and, and still no one from, from the UN, from Human Rights Watch, from Amnesty, from anywhere had managed to get to her or any other journalist and, and document her plight, what was going on. So I said to my husband, <laughs> I think I'm just gonna go to Bangkok. And I, you know, I was all writing this book, so I didn't have to, um, you know, kind of go, go through lots of hoops with the ABC. I just, I just knew that this was important. Someone had to be there and witness what was going to happen. Was this going to be another Dina Ali? That, that what was in my head. 
So I really quickly booked a flight, and um, and I was actually sitting on the Emirates plane when um, Rahaf messaged and said, "Oh, I think they're going to put me on a Kuwait Airlines flight in four hours." And you know, it takes nine hours to get to Bangkok. She had told me it was going to be 11 a.m. on the Monday morning, and when I looked at all the Kuwait Airways flights, there wasn't going to be one earlier, which is why I booked this one. Um, and I was like, "Oh my God, that'd be just you know, that'd be right. I spend this money and I get all the way to Bangkok and you know, I can't even do anything." Um, but then when I landed, that hadn't happened. They, that was just an awful report they'd given her. And I, I couldn't believe that, um, you know, it was more than nearly 30 hours after she had landed and first started making these pleas on Twitter for help, um, that, that she was still there, that she was still sitting in the transit hotel in the airport, that still no uh, representative had got to her, and still no journalist was there either. And so we, I just wandered into the transit hotel and rented room and kind of got my key out and pretended to be a, another Western tourist, which was, you know, that, that was the thing, you know, she, I thought she'd be taken off to immigration detention by that stage. I thought the only role I could play as a journalist would be there at that gate at 11 a.m. outside Kuwait Airways and film as they tried to put her on that plane. I thought, you know, no one did that for Dina Ali. Imagine if they had, imagine if we had that footage of that young woman bound and dragged onto a plane screaming with the world had woken up a bit earlier to, to um, how Saudi Arabia is actively trying to enforce its male guardianship laws in sovereign countries all over the world. Maybe, so I thought that that, that was what my role could be. So I was very surprised when she was still held in the hotel and I could um, basically slip past the security guards who fell asleep. <laughs> and you know, it was like early in the morning on the Monday and before I went into Rahaf's hotel room, I sat in the reception and we were just still messaging each other on WhatsApp and I hadn't, you know, didn't let anyone know I was a journalist at this stage because I thought, look, if she gets taken away, then I won't be able to go to the gate. And, and so we're still just messaging each other and I said to her, have you tried to claim asylum? And she said, well, I, you know, I've been saying it on Twitter and, I, and she had video footage she sent to me that we used in our story of her having a chat with these Thai officials. Um, and she said to them, it's dangerous for me to go back, but she never said kind of that magic sentence, I want to claim asylum. And so she was in contact with some amazing um, human rights advocates. It was some, a former amnesty worker in, in London who was giving her advice, and Phil Robertson, an incredibly um, amazing campaigner and uh, uh, human rights worker for Human Rights Watch based in Bangkok, and so they had given her this advice that she had to make her claim loud and clear in the presence of Thai officials, I want to claim asylum. And, and I was there to witness her do that, and I saw her do that numerous times, over two hours in that little breakfast room at this airport hotel, but no one was listening to her, no one was taking her, her claim seriously, and, and no one was bringing the Thai immigration to come and listen to her ex explain um, why she was, you know, so in fear of being sent home and why she wanted to have the chance to, to make a claim for asylum. So um, when that failed, that, that's when she decided to lock herself in the room. And when she told me she was going to do that, I said, oh, look, can I just come down to the room and interview you first? Um, and so it all just happened very quickly. I got locked in there. Um, and then this incredible kind of eight hours unfolded where you know, Rahaf went from having kind of 200 followers on Twitter to 100,000 followers on Twitter. And it was just the luck of the time zone. You know, America happened to be awake and Mona El-Tahawi has, you know, 300,000 followers on Twitter. And, and suddenly, you know, ambassadors were retweeting Rahaf and she was tweeting directly at ambassadors and she was tweeting directly at the UN and she was quoting the 1962 Geneva Convention because someone had sent her that on WhatsApp. So, you know, it, it just became this incredible, um, you know, it felt like the whole world was watching what was happening in that room and, and what was going to happen next. And it, it was like a movie um, and not what I thought was going to happen when I booked that ticket to Bangkok, you know, I, I was amazed by her, her bravery, you know, she, she did feel like she had nothing to lose, you know, she, in a really heartbreaking moment, um, in, when I interviewed her when she got to Canada, she, she said, look, I was going to kill myself. They're going to send me back. So she, she, she was operating like a woman who had nothing to lose because that's how 
certain she was, that her fate, she would return, was, was going to be terrible. And Human Rights Watch has documented um, you know, violence against women who, who disobey their families in Saudi Arabia and occasional death as well. So you know, this is based on, on facts and, and evidence of, of what happens to people who defy um, those very strict male guardianship rules. To cut a long story short, after those eight hours, and as the world was watching, and as these tweets started to get seen by not just thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people, and suddenly the UNHCR official spokeswoman in Geneva, Melissa Fleming, was tweeting at Ralph, we're going to come to the airport. So what we had been told while we were in the room was that the UN had tried to come, but they hadn't been granted the permission yet by the time. So, you know, it was very, it was very disturbing to to witness, and you, if you saw the story, you might have seen the footage of the Thai officials at the door saying they were the UN. <laughs> you know, the UN wasn't wasn't there, and telling her that she was going to be safe, and she was advised by quite a number of people that um, you know do, do not do not trust what what they say, and that you know the UN isn't there yet, and Human Rights Watch isn't there. So despite them banging on the door saying that, you know, she she was pretty sassy and um, very, very good on social media. Um, and so it was, so Rahab locked the door at like 8.30 in the morning and it was probably about 3.30 that we started to hear rumours that the UN had got to the airport. They hadn't yet got the permission to come to the room, but that they were on their way. So. Then at about five, we heard they were in the building, they were close. <laughs> so there were reporters upstairs, a colleague of mine, Liam Cochran, and also Jonathan Head from the BBC. They were um, having cups of tea in the breakfast room, just pretending to be <laughs> tourists as well. And they told us that he went to the building, and suddenly the, the, the chief, the police chief, whose name is Big Joke, the, the Thai police chief, his, name, his nickname is Big Joke, Big Joke arrived, and so, it became clear that something was happening, but it still wasn't clear that the UNHCR were there to process her claim, that that's what was going to happen. And so at about quarter to six at night, there's this another knock on the door. And because you know, there'd been knocks all day of people trying to entice her out. She hadn't eaten. Stupidly, I didn't bring any food with me because I didn't expect to be locked in there for so long. So they kept coming and saying, would you like breakfast or lunch? You know, just come out. <laughs> and she was like, <laughs> so, um, when the UN did get there, Ralph didn't believe it was them, um, so she made them show their little badges up to the, to the door, and I think we both couldn't quite believe it. Um, I, I thought that we were going to be in there all night and then wait till we fell asleep and had no energy and that they would just kind of bundle her off, you know, and I, yeah, that, that was my concern. Um, so, they came into the room and they were very surprised that I was there because we kept it on the down low because we didn't want to give the times any other reason to kind of, you know, open the door, uh, break the door down, whatever was going to happen. And so um, these two very impressive UNHCR protection officers came into the room and, and told Ralph that they were there to hear her asylum claim. And, you know, it, it was, again, like a movie and I, and I, at first, I wasn't sure if they were going to be allowed to do that. I wasn't sure if the UN had just been invited there kind of to, um, to, to witness what was going on or to be some kind of mediator. But you know, they came into the room and Rahaf had said to me, please don't, don't leave me. And I said, look, I'll go to do my best not, not to leave you. Um, you know, until you feel safe, I'll stay with you. It's, you know, to whatever extent I can. And so when the, the UN got there um, and they said, we're here to process your claim. And when the UN um, takes details of someone's asylum claim, you can't have anyone else in the room. It's a very private kind of um, process that you can go into. And um, so that was finally the moment where I felt like I could leave the room and Rahaf felt safe and you know she was crying with happiness and I was a bit, tearful myself and so yeah we hugged goodbye 
And yeah, I just kind of managed to sneak out of the room and I think the Thais just thought I was part of the UN or I was some strange tourist or what were they doing in the middle of all this because I still just had my little carry-on suitcase and just wanted out. And, um, but the lady at the immigration desk was like, why have you been in the airport for 15 hours? And I was like, I was waiting for my friend. Um, but, um, but then, yeah, a few days, you know, it was an interesting time in Bangkok then for a few days. So I stayed um, with, at the same hotel as Rahaf, but she was kept on really tight security. There was, you know, 10 Thai police officers outside her door, even though they were all asleep at 6 o'clock in the morning, I did notice at one stage. Um, because her father and her brother flew in and they wanted to try and get her to go back. So the UNHCR were really, really concerned about her security. Um, by the Wednesday, it became clear that the UN had um, found her to be a refugee. Um, that news came true, and they had recommended her case to Australia, the place she had been trying to get to, and where she had friends and contacts, and where I've since discovered there's more than 80 young Saudi women who have um, fled here to claim asylum in recent years. And um, so on the Wednesday, she was taken to the Australian Embassy and she, um, her case was beginning to be processed and uh, you know, Minister Dutton warned that there'd be no special treatment. Um, but, you know, that, that was an interesting moment. And then the next day, Foreign Minister um, Maurice Payne arrived and she was there, just incredible timing, being planned weeks ahead. And she was asked, you know, are you going to be taking Rahaf home with you on your plane? And she's like, no, um, we have to, you know, just let the process unfold. But, but by Friday morning, the UN was starting to get really nervous because, you know, I think we all know what the Saudis are capable of. We've, we've all heard about what happened in the Istanbul consulate and we'd seen the footage that had come out of a Saudi official meeting with the Thai saying, oh, you know, why did you just take a passport? We should take in a phone too. So I think it was very clear that there was, you know, there was no sympathy there, that, that her family was still um, very insistent that, that she return. And, and it was this interesting situation where she was, you know, the Thai police were giving her protection and custody, but the UN was also tasked with kind of looking after her and managing her. So they were really really nervous about how quickly they could basically get her to a third country that was safe. Because um, also I think we've all learned as well that Bangkok is not a very good place for refugees to be. Uh, no matter where you're from, it's, it, you know, there are very, you know, not just for Hakeem al-Arabi, but there have been numerous cases of asylum seekers returned, Uyghurs to China, um, uh, Cambodian uh, political refugees seeking asylum who've been returned, all kinds of terrible cases in the last few years and so um, there was a lot of a lot of kind of fear about uh, Rahaf and her security. So that was on the Friday the, the UN took Rahaf to the Canadian Embassy because the Canadians had said that they um, would process her visa. That took place in a matter of hours so um, that Friday night I was I'd actually flown back to Sydney um, fully expecting that Rahaf was going to come. You know, she'd gone to the embassy, the, the ministers here were making the right noises, that, that seemed to be what was going to happen. And then um, when Rahaf messaged and said, oh, I'm, I've just got back from the Canadian embassy, they're taking me here, I'm going to the airport in a few hours. I was calling the minister's office and saying, do you guys know that, you know, she's been taken to the Canadian embassy? And, um, the press advisors weren't aware at that stage. They're like, well, we're still processing her claim. Um, but yeah, so a lot of very interesting behind the scenes um, action there. But you know, refugees don't get to choose what country they go to, and safety was the first priority. And, um, so that's why she went to Canada as quickly as she did. That, that was the main concern. And there was some horrible press here in the commercial media on the Saturday morning of saying that, you know, oh, the Saudi team has snubbed Australia and chosen Canada. I mean, that was just, you know, it was really disappointing to see. Sometimes I think, oh, I wonder that treatment, if she had gone to Australia, would she, is she better off in Canada? I'm not sure, but it, when I saw those headlines, it just made me feel really disappointed. <laughs> um, but not the case at all. The UN chose where she went. Um, 
And, um, and then I started working on this report and thought, okay, so if the world's interested now in, in Saudi women, um, let's try and get a four corners together as fast as we can to try and, you know, take advantage of that interest to tell that wider story of what's going on inside the country. You know, the arrested women's activists that people haven't heard about, absolute heroes like Eugene Al-Hathlou, who's being tortured in jail simply for standing up, you know, for her rights. So there's dozens of them in jail. Um, they've been in there since last May. So that's what we did in that program last Monday. And as part of that story, um, we investigated that not only is there 80 women here on bridging visas waiting for Australia um, to assess their asylum claims, but also we have two firm cases we learned of young women who have been turned back um, at Sydney Airport, young Saudi women who were basically um, the water force officials uh, suspected they were going to claim asylum and and turn them back. Um, and also there is another case which is you know currently underway of two young Saudi women who are also on their way to Australia to claim asylum who were stopped in Hong Kong airport. Um, Saudi the Saudi Consul General um, confronted them at the airport and then they also um, were prevented from boarding a flight by a border force official who and the tourist visas to Australia were then cancelled because they were told they were um, suspected of claiming asylum that they as well. So that's what we discovered as part of that investigation. So um, going to wrap up now because we've got other people to talk. But if you want more details on that, you can watch the Four Corners story or we actually have done a few stories on ABC Online detailing some more specific information about um, the treatment of, of young Saudi women who want to claim asylum here. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed for that very clear human picture. Carl, that to follow. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Khan, and I'm a protection assistant at the UNHCR Regional Representation in Canberra. Thank you so much, Sophie, for that very illuminating um, insight into what is a very human um, situation that. I think sometimes uh, people don't get to see uh, that human side of, of the refugee story, so thank you very much for highlighting um, that to us. So in the 15 minutes or so that have been allotted to me tonight, um, I wish to really touch upon three main issues to set the scene for, for further discussion and debate. Um, and while Sophie's looked at sort of the, the micro level of, of an individual resettlement case, I want to broaden it out and look at the macro landscape of uh, resettlement. So first I'll outline the global resettlement landscape, including the role that UNHCR plays in the resettlement of refugees, and in particular on how UNHCR prioritises cases, um, prioritises referrals for resettlement. Secondly, it is within this global landscape that we can talk about individual emergency resettlement, such as Rahab's case. And here I wish to examine Australia's legal frameworks and how it compares to other states. And also point to UNHCR's interest in collaborating with states on reforming the end-to-end -end, end -end process of individual emergency resettlement. And then lastly, I will touch upon the broader notion of emergency resettlement in responding to large movements of refugees and protracted refugee situations and UNHCR's work arising from the global compact on refugees. So let me begin by giving you an overview of the global resettlement landscape. The statute of the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees gives the agency the mandate to provide for international protection to refugees and other persons concerned, and as a consequence, to seek permanent solutions to their problems by assisting states to find durable solutions. And resettlement is one of three durable solutions that UNHCR has mandated, mandated to implement in cooperation with countries that are state parties of the Convention. The other two durable solutions are local integration into a person's um, country of refuge, or voluntary repatriation, which is when a person returns to their home country. But what about resettlement? UNHCR defines resettlement as involving the selection and transfer of refugees from states in which they have sought protection to a third state which has agreed to admit them as refugees with permanent resident status. So for UNHCR, resettlement serves three equally important functions. First, 
It is a tool to provide for international protection for individual refugees whose life, liberty, safety, <coughs> health or other fundamental rights are at risk in the country of asylum. Secondly, resettlement can also be a durable solution for a large number of refugees, as Claire will explain in her presentation on special humanitarian intakes. And thirdly, it's also a tangible expression of solidarity and responsibility sharing between states, especially towards states that are hosting large numbers of refugees. So a couple of other preliminary points um, about resettlement are worth making. First is that resettlement is not a right that is afforded to refugees. Neither UNHCR nor international law can compel a state to provide for resettlement. And, it's, and the decision whether to resettle an individual from one state to another is entirely at the discretion of states. So globally, UNHCR works in cooperation with states to facilitate resettlement by selecting refugees and referring, state, um, referring cases for resettlement um, consideration to these states. Currently, 35 out of the 145 states that are party to the Refugee Convention have resettlement programs with UNHCR. And as has been the case over many years, the gap between the available resettlement places and the number of refugees who need resettlement is absolutely enormous. So in 2018, UNHCR submitted 81,310 persons for resettlement. That resulted in 55,695 departures. Yet in the same year, UNHCR estimated that 1.1 million refugees are in need of resettlement. And this is projected to rise to 1.4 million in 2019. So this gap between resettlement needs and available places means that UNHCR must constantly triage and prioritise cases for resettlement submission, taking into account the needs of the individual as well as the preferences of receiving states. It is important to emphasise also that there is no orderly queue for UNHCR resettlement, as you might often hear in the media. Recognition by UNHCR that someone is a refugee does not necessarily mean that UNHCR will refer that person for resettlement. Eligible refugees must fall into one of seven UNHCR submission categories and must be identified that resettlement is the most appropriate solution for that individual. So these, these submission categories are legal and physical protection needs, survivors of torture and trauma, medical needs, women and girls at risk, family reunification, children and adolescents at risk, and cases where people have a lack of any kind of foreseeable durable solution to their plight. So if a person is found to be in need of resettlement, UNHCR then will make submissions to states under one of three priority categories. The first is normal priority, where these are cases where there are no immediate medical or other security concerns, and UNHCR would generally like to see these cases um, looked at, and then departure happening within 12 months. The next category up from that is urgent priority, and these are cases that where refugees have serious medical risks or other vulnerabilities that warrant an expedited um, removal within six weeks of submission. And then we have emergency priority, which is like our house case, where removal um, from threatening conditions is required within days, if not hours. And in these cases, ideally, we'd like to see um, a seven-day maximum period between submission and departure. These priority timeframes for UNHCR are aspirational, and they're not always met by the, uh, matched by the receiving countries. So let me turn now to individual emergency we can already see that the resettlement places annually worldwide are very scarce, and places for individual urgent resettlement is even more rare. So in 2017, only 290 cases, or 869 persons, um, or 1.4% of the total referrals made by UNHCR to states were on an emergency basis. And emergency referrals had an acceptance rate of 86%. These figures need to be taken with a little bit of a grain of salt because not all cases that we uh, refer are uh, initially referred uh, on an emergency or urgent basis. 
but then they might be expedited um, and so not captured statistically. So how does emergency resettlement, individual emergency resettlement work in the case of Australia? Well, Australia has established criteria and procedures for accepting emergency referrals from UNHCR. And specifically, under the humanitarian program, we have an emergency rescue visa, it's a subclass 203. And it's designed to provide for emergency resettlement to persons who are subject to persecution, who face immediate threat to their life or personal security. And UNHCR will only refer these cases to Australia, where the evacuation or the need to remove the person is so urgent that priority processing um, would not be adequate. That the reasons for the emergency are not medical, uh, that the cases do not have a clear connection with any other country offering resettlement, and that the person <coughs> doesn't fail the character or security or other security um, requirements. Emergency rescue visas that are referred by UNHCR are given the highest processing priority by the department. They generally try to um, decide whether to accept the case or not within two days, um, and then pending health checks and other checks, um, departure within three days after that. There is no allocation in the annual quota for these emergency rescue visas, and they're granted on a needs-based basis. I could only really find one public mention of the use of this visa, and that was in 2009, when two Iraqi personnel were resettled to Australia because it was found that they were in grave and imminent danger, having played a role in the rescue of an Australian engineer, Douglas Wood. But Australia also can expedite cases under other visas under its humanitarian program, and these include the Women at Risk visa, subclass 204, for women who are at risk of persecution and who don't have the protection of a male relative. And in some other cases, the refugee subclass 200 visas may also be expedited. So how do we compare them to other countries who offer similar emergency resettlement tools? Well, Canada, for example, has 100 places under its emergency protection program. Like Australia, they don't take medical emergencies, but decisions are made very quickly within 24 hours of the UNHCR referral. And if, if accepted, then um, the Canadians aim to ensure departure within the week um, and the person gets granted a permanent visa. In instances where it's not possible to complete health or character checks overseas, the Canadians will issue the person with a temporary visa to allow them to come to Canada and then to have those checks completed on Canadian soil. Finland is another country that allocates 100 places a year at the moment to emergency resettlement. And they are willing to resettle persons on the basis of UNHCR documentation only without the need for an interview, unlike, for example, um, Australia, which normally, you would normally require an interview um, before the case proceeds. Finland also aims to make, um, to make decisions within five working days of a referral. Sweden has a much larger program at the moment, um, around 900 places worldwide for emergency and emergency settlement, and that will take referrals from UNHCR headquarters and some other operations around the world with the aim of making the decision again within five days. So what we can see is that each state approaches emergency resettlement slightly differently. And UNHCR recognises the need more than ever to collaborate with these states on reforming and refining these end-to-end -end processes of emergency resettlement. Understanding, for example, what types of cases states are willing to accept, what are the relevant legislative criteria, what settlements or support services are available on standby to receive emergency cases in these countries. We see very much states as being operational partners in this respect, and we, as I said, keen to refine these processes further to allow for a greater number of referrals that are fit for purpose, that are effective, responsive, and efficient. We see continued collaboration with states as necessary to build a strong community practice around individual emergency resettlement and to broaden the base of state actors that contribute to individual emergency resettlement each year. Because for UNHCR, the, the individual emergency resettlement represents an important protection tool. And when emergency resettlement works, that's when resettlement as a tool is, is at its sharpest. <coughs> Provides immediate and often life-saving um, solution for it. And whereas a lot of resettlement processing has become longer and more complex over the years, 
and rightly so in many instances because of states' needs to, for security screenings and the like, we need to maintain a degree of flexibility and agility in emergency cases. And that can only come through building trust and relationships with states. But in all this, UNHCR must also remain selective in its decision to refer emergency individual cases so as not to erode the credibility of UNHCR's judgment and to preserve the scarce resettlement places that are on offer by states. Looking beyond individual cases then, what about larger groups? How can we make resettlement work for larger groups of refugees who may need resettlement and are, in stuck, and are stuck in emergency situations? Looking to the future, we can see some, some headwinds for global resettlement efforts not least the fact that the, the United States resettlement program has been reduced to 30,000 places a year, and the US has traditionally been the largest contributor to UNHCR resettlement efforts. But having said that, there is some cause for optimism. The Global Compact on Refugees, which was affirmed by 164 member states of the UN General Assembly on 17 December 2018, sets out an ambitious agenda for responsibility sharing between states. While this compact is not, is not binding on the individual states, it does provide a framework and an agenda of action to strengthen international cooperation and responses to large movements of refugees. And one of the key pillars to this comprehensive refugee response framework and a program of action revolves around expanding access to resettlement and complementary pathways for refugees and this is being implemented or it's being led by UNHCR through a three-year strategy. So in the coming years, UNHCR will seek pledges from states at, a global, at global forums to establish or strengthen good practices in, re in resettlement programs in order to increase the pool of resettlement places that are available. This could include efforts to ensure that, for example, resettlement processing is predictable, is efficient and effective to allow 25% of UNHCR referrals to depart within six months of submission, and or dedicating at least 10% of um, resettlement submissions as unallocated places for emergency or urgent cases um, identified by UNHCR. As well, other avenues to access protection, such as complementary pathways, like private sponsorship programs, labor mobility programs, educational pathways and special humanitarian intakes will also be encouraged. These are important reforms that we hope will have a lasting impact on refugees around the world. And on that note, I'll hand it over to Claire to talk about special humanitarian intakes. Thank you very much, Khan, for that very clear explanation of some of the mechanics involved, and also <coughs> for your emphasis on partnership within the framework of individual state contributions. Claire. Thank you very much, Guy. Thank you, everyone, for being here. So I wanted to pick up on something that Khan mentioned. Through Sophie's first-hand account, we've seen how individual emergency resettlement uh, can work. But Khan mentioned larger groups, and the Caldwell Centre has just published a policy brief on special humanitarian intakes. So when a country like Australia responds to a large number of people who are in a precarious situation, and that situation uh, may have escalated quite quickly, and their needs may be quite urgent. Uh, you will recall that in September 2015, the Australian government, the then Abbott government, announced a one-off special humanitarian intake of 12,000 Syrians and Iraqis. Then Prime Minister Abbott uh, described this as demonstrating that Australia is a, quote, generous country that tries to be a, the best international citizen. So you also recall that that announcement was made as part of an international effort uh, in responding to displacement from Syria, and other countries like Canada made similar pledges to Australia. <coughs> so Australia's special intake of Syrians and Iraqis, those 12,000, uh, did provide protection to um, 12,000 people who were in a very vulnerable situation. But the intake also raises some important questions about fairness and efficiency transparency, and ultimately the questions that frame our panel here tonight, which are when, why, and how do governments decide to offer resettlement, and to whom? 
So I'm going to very quickly outline some of the findings in our uh, policy brief, uh, very quickly so that we can cut to the, to the questions uh, that I know you all have for Sophie and Khan. Special intakes like Australia's response to the Syrians and Iraqis are historically rare, but the Syrian displacement from Syria won't be the last situation that Australia will be called on uh, to, to assist with. And UNHCR already periodically issues flash calls or urgent calls for the acceptance of particular groups uh, in need. And it has also worked to establish emergency transit facilities in countries such as Romania and the Philippines, where small groups can be evacuated, to which small groups can be evacuated quickly while they wait for admission into a third country. And so it's worth looking again at how Australia could do that could uh, formulate a special intake in <coughs> So to, that, to the first two questions, uh, when and why do governments implement special intakes and when, when and why should they? UNHCR, as Khan mentioned, provides guidance on priority areas and situations for resettlement in its annual report. So uh, in the most recent report, a central Mediterranean situation and a Syrian situation were identified. And as Khan mentioned, a special intake from those priority areas can help ease conditions for those who are left behind and for that host state. It can encourage states to keep their borders open. You might remember the international response to Kosovo refugees in 1999. And that came about because uh, with US backing, Macedonia warned that it may have to close its borders unless other states would step in and help evacuate refugees from its territory. And so, in the space of a matter of weeks, UNHCR worked with IOM to evacuate some 90,000 people um, to third countries. So the third question, how? How should countries implement, how should countries like Australia implement special intakes? Well, where possible, future special intakes should be streamlined. They should use expedited processing, streamlined processes <coughs> to ensure that resettlement can be rapid and therefore rapidly increase what's called the protection space uh, for those who remain in that host country. For example, we mentioned Canada tonight. Uh, to expedite the processing of Syrian refugees, Canada established standalone operation centres in Lebanon, uh, Jordan and Turkey, in which Canadian authorities worked alongside UNHCR and NGOs to um, interview each refugee in a single day. So, refugee would come in, they would have their interviews, their medical checks, their security checks, all done on site in a single day. We have Canada Border Services Agency staff um, conducting strategic and random checks of fraud, um, checking biometrics and other data against national security databases. And according to an evaluation by uh, Canada's Department of uh, Immigration Department, this streamlined process was one of the major reasons that Canada was able to accept 25,000 Syrian refugees in less than five months. We would also recommend, in dealing with that question of how, that special intake should offer permanent resettlement. This is because the time-limited evacuation can become complicated if conditions within the country of origin do not improve and people are unable to go home. Now, I mentioned the uh, Australia's response to Kosovo refugees in 1999. Australia temporarily admitted about 4,000 people. Uh, refugees were then pushed to return against their will and without sufficient improvement in conditions in their country of origin. The Australian government steadfastly refused to allow people to remain beyond their temporary admission, and those who resisted repatriation uh, were declared unlawful non-citizens by the Minister for Immigration and subject to immigration detention. In comparison, uh, of the 7,000 Kosovars who were transferred to Canada, and about 20,000 transferred to the US, they were transferred there on a temporary basis, but many chose to remain and were allowed to remain permanently. But independent experts assessing that have expressed concern that those measures were used by Canada and the US to replace existing resettlement quotas. So therefore undermining the capacity of those countries to help other groups in need. So that really underscores the importance of any kind of special intake being additional to a pre-planned resettlement quota. And then we come to our final question of whom? 
The selection of refugees for resettlement within a special intake should focus on identifying refugees with the greatest protection needs. The implementation of Australia's Syria and Iraq special intake did not necessarily reflect the principles articulated in its announcement. When it was announced, uh, the Australian government said that it would be assisting the most vulnerable, so persecuted minorities, women and children, families. Only about uh, 38%, about 4,500 people in that 12,000, were resettled uh, under the refugee category of Australia's uh, resettlement program. And most, but not all, as far as we understand, were referred by UNHCR. But the remainder, so a bit over 60%, were selected uh, by Australian officials under the Special Humanitarian Program. So that's an important means of achieving family reunification, but it doesn't really give due regard to UNHCR's important role in managing resettlement needs and programs worldwide. And so for that reason, our policy brief recommends that special intakes uh, be undertaken in consultation and cooperation with UNHCR because that agency is best placed to identify where the need for resettlement is greatest. So, thinking about those questions, how could Australia better frame a special intake in future and consider those questions of when, why, how, and who, if that was to be needed again in future? We think that the Australian government could plan for a special intake quota additional to the annual resettlement program via essentially what would be a buffer or a ceiling, an additional ceiling. Uh, historically, the US has had such a buffer within, within its, what was formerly a large resettlement program. Sweden, as Khan mentioned, has a, a flexible element of its um, intake that is rather large in com- relative to its intake. So we think the number of people that Australia resettled, the 12,000 Syrians and Iraqis, over two years could be a good starting point for thinking about what that um, buffer quota could be. And as Khan mentioned earlier, under the Global Compact on Refugees, Australia and other states will be required to report on their progress. And so clearer thinking about when, why, how, and who this future special intake could provide really tangible evidence of progress towards the compact's objectives of responsibility sharing and solidarity, and would also demonstrate Australia's commitment to using special intakes for the benefit of the international refugee protection.